0: We are uh, continuing our series in the book of Galatians this morning. We are um, we are in the home stretch. Including this week, we've got four uh, Sundays left. We've got two. Uh, we'll have two Sundays um, today and next week in the fifth chapter, and then we will have two Sundays um, in the sixth chapter. And uh, as we uh, as we are moving forward, it's important for us to remember. We've talked about this. There, there's this sort of Triple structure in Galatians. The, the first two chapters, there's a middle two chapters, and there are these last two chapters, and we're min- moving into that last section. We're moving into this, this section in which Paul, who has spent the previous four chapters talking about grace, talking about the gospel, showing what that is, using his own life as example in the first two chapters, relying on arguments from Scripture in the middle two chapters, um, Paul's now moving to application. What does this grace look like? What does it mean in our lives? But as we get going, it's important for us to maybe take stock for a second and figure out where we have been. We've been in Galatians for a long time, and so maybe, maybe you need a bit of a reminder where we are. Paul is writing to this group of churches in the central area of Asia Minor, what we now think of as Turkey. And Paul is directly dealing with false teachers that have been gaining influence in these churches and have been telling people that they need a Jesus plus gospel. They need a gospel that's Jesus plus something else. In their case, the, the, the thing they've really been talking about is that the believers um, need circumcision. They need Jesus plus circumcision. But, but really, it's, it's anything in the law. And Paul has shown, and will show us again today, that, that if you open the door to one aspect of the law, you have to open the door to the whole law. And so he has used his own life to show the gospel of grace, that our salvation comes from God alone, independent of anything that we may or may not have done. And then he did move into Scripture, and in particular the the promise of Abraham and the law of Moses, and showing us how Jesus was the fulfillment of the law and the completion of the promise. Now what this means is this this is showing us that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus. All of the Old Testament is about Jesus. Jesus. And I know that for some of us that may not be a very controversial thing to say. It's what we've always thought. It's what we've always believed. It's what we've always been taught. But that is a more and more controversial thing to say. This this week the internet exploded because a Presbyterian pastor made an innocuous tweet that the Old Testament points to Christ and he spent most of the week defending himself against charges of anti-Semitism. That's where we are in the world—that's the—that is—and we're going to see the 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 oh—the uh, oh, word is escaped me right now. The offense of the cross. There we go. the cross is offensive, and to say that the all of the Old Testament points to cross to, to, to Jesus and to the cross, and people rejecting that is an example of the offense of the cross. But I'm here to tell you that the idea that all of the Old Testament points to Jesus is the traditional, historic, Christian perspective, and that if you believe that, it does not make you an anti-Semite. It means that you have a different reading of Scripture than other people. You have a different reading of Scripture than our Jewish brothers and sisters. Of course we do. If we had the same reading, we would believe the same thing. Finally, last week, we took a look at the story of Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Isaac and Ishmael. And we saw how that we are children of the promise, not children of the flesh. And that as children of the promise, we are adopted heirs of God, and that we are free as those adopted sons and heirs, we are free, and that we are no longer enslaved to sin and to the law. And so, since that was where we ended last week, that's a good place to start this week, right? So we're going to be in Galatians. We're going to be in the first 15 verses of Galatians chapter 5. Will you stand with me as we read God's Word together? For freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Take note. I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourselves circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. You who are trying to be justified by the law are alienated from Christ. You have fallen from grace for we eagerly await through the spirit by faith the hope of righteousness for in christ jesus neither circumcision for in christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything what matters is faith working through love you were running well who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth this persuasion does not come from the one who calls you a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters, Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. This is the word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly God, as we turn to your word this morning as we we begin to examine and apply the freedom that you have given us. God, I would pray that that we would avoid both extremes. That we would avoid the extreme of legalism and we would avoid the extreme of license and that we would follow your way. The way of your word and the way of your son. God, I pray that as we open your word and as we seek to understand it, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing to you, our God and our King. Amen. may be seated. So, If we are free in Christ, and that's where we start, right? In in verse 1, the saying that we are is for freedom, that Christ has set us free. So if we are free in Christ, there are three ways that we need to live. First, we do need to live free. Second, we need to live in the truth. And third, we need to live to love and to serve. So the first way that we need to live is that we need to, to, to live free. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever seen a license plate from the great state of New Hampshire, but it has their state motto on it. And their state motto is, live free or die. A fairly extreme statement to be found on a state license plate. I'm from Florida. Mine is the Sunshine State. It's kind of the opposite end of live free or die, right? Even in North Carolina, what? what are, at least for a long time, we were what? We were first in flight. Great boast happens to be true. Ohio can claim the Wright brothers all they want. It happened here, but again, not quite live free or die i mean that's a uh, that's that's pretty heavy and, and we talk about this a lot and we've we've talked about this before and we've talked about freedom and and you know when we talk about Christian freedom and when we talk about worldly freedom we can Because it's the same word, we we get them sort of overlap sometimes, right? And so when I say that we need to live free, I'm not talking about it in the sort of state of New Hampshire, live free or die, leave me alone kind of way. I got to spend some time in New Hampshire a number of years ago, several months. They take it seriously. Kind of like when you see a Texan say, "Don't mess with Texas." You don't mess with Texas. If you see a New Hampshire, New Hampshireite, New Hampshireian, a New Hamster—I don't know—don't mess with their freedom. Well, what do we mean when we talk about freedom? When when Jesus is talking about freedom, when Paul here talks about freedom, what does he mean when he says for freedom? Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. What does he mean by living free? This, this first verse of chapter 5 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. In fact, you uh, um, have, may have received at some point in the past, it's not right now, but you may have received at some point in the past, an email from me in which that verse was in my email signature. See, this, this verse is it's the transition verse from what Paul has been talking about to where Paul is going. Paul has been talking about freedom. He's, he's shown us what freedom. Chapters 3 and 4 have been all about freedom and slavery and being free from sin and being free from the law and no longer being enslaved by those things. And so this verse is this, is this pivot. It's this transition from where we have been to where we are going in the book of Galatians. What does it mean to live free? We're called right here, right? We're called to live free, not to submit again to slavery. Because Christ has set us free, we need to rest and rejoice in Him. This is the first aspect of living free, is resting and rejoicing in Christ. In the 8th chapter of John, Jesus says, so if the Son sets you free, you really will be free. So here's the question. If if you know that the Son has set you free and you are really free and you aren't glorifying God because of it, why? You know, I think sometimes we forget how bad slavery is. There's a whole story in the Exodus. They're, they're moving through, and it's hard. I mean, they're, they're stuck in the wilderness. Now, they're stuck in the wilderness because of what they've done, right? Because they haven't lived by faith. But they're stuck in the wilderness, and there's a group of people that comes up. And I, I borrowed this phrase from my mother. I don't know if she got it from somewhere else, but, but man, it works. It's the Back to Egypt Committee. Why don't we go back to Egypt? At least, at least we knew what life was like. At least, at least you know, we may have been slaves, but at least we had three squares and a roof over our head. That happens sometimes, right? There's always the back to Egypt committee. There's always the group, you're moving forward, you're trying to move forward. There's always the group that wants to go back. There's always the group that has forgotten, or, or maybe they were never really aware of, of how bad the slavery And I think that happens to us sometimes. I think sometimes as believers, we we forget how awful our slavery to sin was. And I think that until we come to terms with the depravity and the hopelessness of our sin and of our previous condition when we were enslaved to it, we will not be capable of seeing the awesome beauty of what Christ has done for us. I know many of y'all have known the person whose life was an absolute wreck before they got saved, before God called them and, and they came to God. And, and, and those people seem to have a passion that some other folks don't have because, because they remember what a wreck their life was when they were enslaved to sin. I think it's possible. Sometimes it's been so long since you were enslaved to sin that you've just forgotten. I mean, it's been 20 years since I graduated from high school. I have forgotten how awful high school was. I look back on it now, and I'm like, man, the late 90s were awesome. Why can't we go back then? And I said something to my mother like that the other day, and she goes, you have forgotten how miserable you were. We look back, and we forget. Distance colors things. So that's maybe one reason that we don't glorify Christ because we've forgotten how bad the slavery was. The other, the, other, the other reason may be this. We can be freed from the guilt of sin. We can be freed objectively from the guilt of sin. So, so we can be freed fr- from the guilt. We can be technically and legally freed from it, from, freed from the consequence. But we're not freed yet subjectively. We're not freed yet from the experience and the daily struggle of sin. See, this is the difference between these big words that we talk about sometimes of justification and sanctification. Justification is that being freed from the guilt of sin, being justified. You're, You're justified before God. You're declared free, innocent of your sin Sanctification is that process, and it's a process of being freed from the grip of sin in your life. It's it's learning to be free from the power of sin. There was a a Lutheran theologian, Gerhard Ford, who said, sanctification is thus simply the art of getting used to justification. We've We've been freed but we've been enslaved to sin so long we don't know what that freedom means. It's hard for us to experience it. There are all sorts of stories about that, right? People who have been held in captivity and then when they are released, they don't know how to to deal. Read some stories about some men who were held for years and years and years as POWs in Vietnam and how they struggled to reintegrate when they came home. Or, or people who've been, been institutionalized in prison for many years, and they get out, and they, they don't know how to, how to function. They're free, but they can't live like they're free. Because those systems and the, the power of that captivity still holds them. We need to become what we already are free and justified people resting in Christ alone. I think that sometimes we have a hard time doing this because we don't don't believe it. We don't believe that we're actually free from condemnation. We don't believe that we actually are accepted in Christ perfectly. that's That's what guilt is, right? That's what regret is. That's what... That's what these, these things that we do that we just, we just keep thinking that we have to keep performing. We're not living out our, our new identity in Christ. We keep reverting to the old idols and to slavery, to religion. And that's where we end up with a Jesus plus gospel. Because we fail to believe that we're actually free from condemnation, that we're actually accepted in Christ. And so we feel like we've got to do something else. And so, and so we're free, but we keep living as if we're slaves. But let me ask you a question. If God has freed you from sin and the law, if you are no longer enslaved by those things, why are you still acting as if you are? You have to work, we have to work the gospel deep down inside in order to run in the freedom that is yours. We have to to let it permeate us and change us. This is why we have to hear the gospel over and over and over and over again, even when we already know it. This is why discipleship is so important. This is why daily time with God and prayer and his word is so important because it drives the gospel down into us. So that we can be free. So that we can live free. Not live as if we are still slaves. as we continue to think about what it means to live free, we're also told by fall that we need to stand firm because Christ has set us free. See, standing firm, standing firm in our freedom is a safeguard against us submitting again to bondage. If you're standing firm in your freedom, you are not going to go easily back into slavery. There's this idea sometimes that if we if we teach freedom in Christ, that people won't serve Him. You know, hey, I'm free, right? So I, gotta, I get to do stuff. But in fact, it's the, it's the opposite of that. When we see what it is that God has done for us, that Christ has done it all, that it is finished, that it was finished on the cross and in the empty tomb, then this truly gets work into our heart Then we come to adore Christ and an adoring heart does not lead to a sinful life but to a holy one when when someone frees us we want to serve them right so I, i'm i'm about to use an example that maybe 25% of you are going to get star wars chewbacca and han solo Han saves Chewie's life. And what does Chewie do? He sticks by Han. Okay, here's another one. I don't know if any of you remember this movie. Remember Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves? Remember at the very beginning, Robin saves... uh, um, Azim. thank you. He saves the moor. And he, what does he do? He follows him. He follows him all the way to England. He follows them to a land where there is no sun. Where he cannot see how to pray to Mecca. He follows him all the way into battle to fight for people that aren't his because he had been saved. When we're saved, we, we do that, right? When we're saved, we, we want to serve and follow the person that has saved us. Christ is freed us through His atoning work on the cross. It is a glorious freedom, and it's a freedom that should lead us to rest in Him and to rejoice in Him and to glorify Him. It should cause us to do what He wants us to do. It should cause us to want what He wants, wants for us. And that is to not submit again to the yoke of slavery. So we have to live Free. We also have to live in truth. The second way we are to live is to live in truth. And the Galatians are not doing that. They are listening to the message of bondage that's coming from these false teachers. And Paul confronts these teachers. He shows uh, four results of false teachings and five characteristics of false teachers. As as we move through these verses, you're going to see that he talks about circumcision, but circumcision here is just symbolizing this religion of human achievement instead of the faith of divine grace. So these false teachings, what, what, are the, what are the aspects? What are the results of false teaching? First, if you accept a false message of legalism, of a Jesus plus something else gospel, you will view Christ as insufficient. Right there, Galatians 5.2. Take note, I, Paul, am telling you that if you get yourself circumcised, Christ will not benefit you at all. Salvation by human action, a belief in salvation by human action is saying that Christ isn't enough. It's saying that let Moses finish what Christ started instead of letting Christ finish what Moses started. See, Christ's work is perfect. We cannot add to it. We cannot take from it. We cannot improve on what Christ has done. It is finished. Christ is sufficient. If you accept the false message of legalism, you must obey the whole law. Again, I testify to every man who gets himself circumcised that he is obligated to do the entire law. If you think that you have to obey the law in one aspect, you have to obey it in all. And this is what we know. Paul's already shown us back in the third chapter that no one can keep the law. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. We can't do the whole law. And yet when we take on one aspect and make it necessary, we put ourselves under the whole of the law. If you expect that the teachings of human achievement, of this legalism, then you are turning from the doctrine of grace. You who are trying to be justified by the law or alienated from Christ, you have fallen from grace. Some people have tried to use this as a a proof text to show that Paul is saying that you can lose your faith. If you read Paul, if you read the totality of Paul, you will know that that's not what Paul is saying. That's not what Paul believes. That is not true. What Paul is talking about here is falling away from the truth of the doctrine of grace. If you believe that salvation is by human deed, then you have fallen away from the belief that salvation is by grace. It's one or the other. You can't have both. Either Christ died for your sins or you can save yourself by your deeds. Finally, if you accept these false teachings that you lose, hope for future glory. For we eagerly await through the Spirit by faith the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accomplishes anything. What matters is faith working through love. We see right here, we see faith, hope, and love, the marks of a believer. A works based righteousness leads to fear and to bondage and to despair. Following the law, following human deeds, does nothing. It's ultimately empty, it is hopeless. But the teaching of the true gospel is not empty. It is life-changing. It leads to a life of faith working through love. Love is the fruit of the saving faith. The false teachers were all about external ritual, but the real Christian life is about a faith that is demonstrated through loving service to God and to others. So those are the the dangers of the false teaching. What about the characteristics of the false messengers? First, the false messenger is going to hinder obedience. 5.7 You were running well. Who prevented you from being persuaded regarding the truth? The false teachers have moved in and they are hindering obedience to God. False teachers are also not from God. This persuasion does not come from, one who calls from the one who calls you. I don't care how much false teachers claim that they are called by God or claim that God sent them. I don't care how much Scripture they can quote or how good they sound or how much sense what they are saying makes. If they are not teaching the true Gospel, they are not from God. Galatians, back in the beginning, the first chapter Paul said this, he said, Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and who want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. Now we have said before, I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you have received, a curse be on him. I don't care how amazing it sounds. It sounds. If it is contrary to the gospel of grace, it is not from God. False teachers also contaminate others. We see that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough. Leaven, we're talking about yeast, right? How much? Yeast? You don't need a whole lot of yeast. If you're making bread, you don't need a whole lot of yeast, do you? You need just a little bit. A little bit can can cause a whole lot of growth in the bread. Just one or two false teachers in the midst of the body can affect everyone. It can contaminate the whole body. Fourth, we see that these false teachers will be judged. I myself am persuaded in the Lord you will not... Accept any other view, but whoever it is that is confusing you will pay the penalty. We see two things here, right? First, we see that those who are truly in Christ will not be persuaded by a false gospel. But we also see that these false teachers of the gospel will pay the price. And anyone who stands in front of the people of God regularly and preaches, this should cause them to quake and tremble. Because we who, who are called to lead and to preach and to teach, we will be held account for what we do and for what we say, and we will be judged for it. And there are an awful lot of people, there are an awful lot of teachers and preachers that are going to be paying the penalty for their false teaching. And finally, we see that false teachers persecute real teachers. Now, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I being persecuted? If in that case, the offense of the cross has been abolished. See, this is what I was saying. The cross and its message, it offends people. People would rather you make much of them and not very much of the cross. People want a salvation by works system. And why do we want that? We want that so we can brag on ourselves. Hey, look what I did. Look what I accomplished. Look what I was able to do. We we love to brag on ourselves. We love to be seen as righteous and virtuous by the people around us. We don't want to point past ourselves to Christ. We want all the fingers on us. Because we're so awesome. This is pride. This is belief that we can do it. See, the cross is either a stumbling block or the power of God for salvation. Paul tells us this in the first chapter of First Corinthians. We can either boast in it or we can mock it and reject its power. See, the cross offends because it crushes Human pride. It obliterates the religion of human achievement. The cross is offensive because it says it's not up to you, but it is solely up to God. The cross offends because it takes it out of our hands and puts it where it belongs, into the hands of God. And that scares us, and it terrifies us, and it annoys us. The cross is offensive because it's exclusive. Because if I can work my way to heaven, then everybody can work their way to heaven. But if it's only up to God, then it's only up to God. And it says that only those who are in the way, the truth, and the life will come to the Father. And there are very few things that will get you in trouble faster these days than telling people the only way to salvation the only way to God, the only way to truth, the only way to true happiness, the only way to true freedom is Christ. That'll get you run out of town on a rail real quick. Because the cross is offensive. And because the cross is offensive, Paul ends with this slightly offensive, slightly coarse statement. In verse twelve, now, what I read to you was: I wish those who are disturbing you might also let themselves be mutilated. If you were to go back and read the Greek, it would say: I wish, uh, I, I wish those who were who were troubling you, who were disturbing you, would let themselves be castrated. I'm not going to get into the details. On circumcision and castration, but we can see how one might derive an image of one from the other. We good? Okay. This is one of those things where Paul's annoyed. Paul's really annoyed. You can tell that Paul's annoyed. I mean, Paul's just told a whole group of people to mutilate themselves but It's also funny. I mean, it's, it really is a play on words. It really is kind of like an anger pun. They want you to circumcise, They want you to circumcise yourself. Well, this is what I want them to do. I mean, there's, there's some humor here. But he goes to this extreme. He goes to this, this level of, of, of coarseness. And it's it is it's coarse. Because he's disgusted and horrified by false teaching. Because the false teaching has done this much to him, has has made him this angry that he pushes to this level. And here's the thing we need to be that offended by false teaching. We need to be able to confront it and root it out the same way that Paul is here. Because here is the truth, brothers and sisters. False teaching. The teaching of the religion of human achievement is sending people to hell. And it is keeping people enslaved. And if that does not offend you, we need to have another conversation. So we need to live free. And we need to live in truth. We also need to live to love and to serve. See, there are two things that Paul wants us to avoid. He wants us to avoid legalism trying to earn acceptance before God by works, but he also wants us to avoid license, which results from misapplying the doctrine of grace. And he's been focused on legalism for most of the letter, but now as he's moving into what is this gospel of grace, how does it work itself out in our lives, he's addressing this temptation of license as well. Freedom from the law does not do away with the obligation for holy conduct. Rather, a justified people are now free to follow Christ and do what He wants. Part of being free from sin is being free to love and free to serve. It's a positive freedom. This is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law of love, to love your neighbor as yourself. See, negatively, Paul is saying don't use it as an opportunity for, the, for your flesh, for your fallen human nature to, to rear up and to gain control, because Christian freedom isn't a freedom to sin, but it's a freedom from sin. Christian freedom is the freedom to enjoy pursuing holiness. Christian freedom doesn't live to gratify the desires of the flesh, because Christian freedom knows that that's not freedom, that's slavery. The people who run around, I'm free to do this, I'm free to do, I'm free to this, that, or the other thing. I don't want to be a Christian because I, I'd have to give up my freedom. They're not free. They're enslaved. They're enslaved to to sin. Positively, he says that we are free to serve one another through love. This is a paradox, right? We're free to serve. But what he's saying is, hey, you want a law to follow? Look, we need laws. We need rules, right? We need guardrails. We need guidelines. You want a law? Here's a law. Love. That's the only law you need. You have the grace of Christ. The only law you need is love. Love God and love others. They're so closely tied to one another that they are inseparable. If you love God, you will manifest it in loving others. There's a unity that comes from this freedom, from this loving and this service. Christ has set us free. In fact, it's for freedom that Christ has set us free. So let us live free, resting in in Christ. Let us live in truth, not believing the message of the false teacher, and let us love and serve others. Our hymn of invitation is going to be three hundred and